0: I would like to read one of the most insightful and interesting blog posts for me, probably, from Brain Pickens, which is titled Networked Knowledge and Combinatorial Creativity. The subtitle goes like this, why creativity is like Lego or what Richard Dawkins has to do with Susan Zantec and Gandhi. I'm not going to read the entire piece, but I believe that some passages here are extremely insightful and full of depth that every human being needs to hear because when you feel that it is just so deep it starts with well it doesn't start with this quote but somewhere close to the beginning of the article we have a quote from adam Gopnik, which says our minds were altered less by books than by index slips Which is interesting, uh, recognizing not only the absolute value of content, but also its relational value. The value not just of information itself, but also of information architecture. Not just of content, but also of content curation. And I totally agree with that. We are altered by information. Uh, We are overwhelmed with information today, and it's not just the content itself that influences the way we think and we see the world, but how the content is being curated, how the content is organized, how the information is structured or architectured, all these things definitely play a role. You may have heard this anecdote. Picasso is sitting in the park, sketching. A woman walks by, recognizes him, runs up to him and pleads him to draw her portrait. He's in a good mood, so he agrees and starts sketching. A few minutes later, he hands her the portrait. The lady is ecstatic. She gushes about how wonderfully it captures the very essence of your character, what beautiful, beautiful work it is, and asks how much she owes him. $5,000, ma'am, says Picasso. The lady is taken aback, outraged, and asks how that's even possible, given it only took him five minutes. Picasso looks up and, without missing a beat, says... No, ma'am. It took me my whole life. The story captures something we all understand on a deep, intuitive level, but our creative egos sort of don't really want to accept it. And that is the idea that creativity is combinatorial. That nothing is entirely original. That everything builds on what came before. And that we create by taking existing pieces of inspiration, knowledge, skill and insight that we gather over the course of our lives and recombining them into incredible new creations. Networked knowledge, like dot connecting and combinatorial creativity, which is the essence of what Picasso describes through this anecdote. The idea that in order for us to truly create and contribute to the world, we have to be able to connect countless dots to cross-pollinate ideas from a wealth of disciplines, to combine and recombine these pieces to build new castles. Kind of Legos. The more of these building blocks we have, and the more diverse their shapes and colors, the more interesting our castles will become. Because if we only have one color and one shape, it greatly limits how much we can create, even within our one area of expertise. Einstein famously attributed some of his greatest physics breakthroughs to his violin breaks, which he believed connected different parts of his brain in new new ways. And Vladimir Nabokov used to say, well, it's actually a quote of his, Literature and butterflies are the two sweetest passions known to men. He was a secret, what's the word, Lepidopterist. He collected and studied butterflies religiously. And he believed his scholarly obsession is what helped him develop his deep passion for detail and precision, which is what made his writing writing so crisp and vivid. This concept of combinatorial creativity and the cross-pollination of disciplines of course isn't new. In the past century alone, it's been iterated and reiterated over and over again in just about every cultural discipline. In 1952 Iconic designer Alvin Lustig wrote in an essay, I have found that all positions men take in their beliefs are profoundly influenced by thousands of small, often imperceptible experiences that slowly accumulate to form a sum total of choices and decisions. In 1964 Neurophysiologist Roger Sperry drew an analogy between neurons and ideas. He said, Ideas cause ideas and help evolve new ideas. They interact with each other and with other mental forces in the same brain, in neighboring brains, and thanks to global communication, in far distant foreign brains. In 1970, French molecular biologist Jacques Monod proposed that What he called the abstract kingdom, a conceptual place analogous to the biosphere populated by ideas that propagate much like organisms do in the natural world, Mnod wrote, Ideas have retained some of the properties of organisms. Like them, they tend to perpetuate their structure and to breed. They, too, confuse, recombine, segregate their content. Monod said ideas have spreading power and propagate infectivity. We see this today with the language of viral ideas. In 1976, Richard Dawkins, in his iconic book The Selfish Gene, coined the word mem for a similar concept. Examples of mems are tunes, ideas, catchphrases, clothes, fashions, ways of making pots, or of building arches. Just as genes propagate themselves in the gene pool by leaping from body to body via sperms or eggs, some mems propagate themselves in the pool by leaping from brain to brain via a process, which, in the broad sense, can be called imitation. And I like this last part, because it makes me think about the cliché we've all heard a million times. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. But in the context of this domino effect of ideas, It seems imitation might well be the sincerest form of ideation. In 2010, Stephen Johnson writes in his excellent Where Good Ideas Come From, the great driver of scientific and technological innovation in the last 600 years has been the increase in our ability to reach out and exchange ideas with other people and to borrow other people's hunches and combine them with our hunches and turn them into something new. I like to think of it this way. We take information from it, synthesize insight, which in turn germinates ideas. And then we take these ideas, ours and those of others, we toss them into our mental reservoir where they sit and sort of just float around until one day they float into just right alignment to click into a new idea. Now, implicit to this idea of combinatorial creativity is the admission is that nothing is truly original, at least not in the sense of being built from scratch, and that can be hard. There is a lot of resistance in the creative ego to that idea, but there is plenty of evidence for this ecosystem of influences and inspirations. In art, Nina Pelle photographed archaeological artifacts from the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Museum of Art and animated them to illustrate her point. All creativity built upon something that existed before, and every work of art is essentially a derivative work. In animation, in his visual essay entitled Versions, Oliver Larrick explores the reappropriation of images by looking at how Disney recycles animation. In design, there is a flicker set called Similarities that exposes examples of graphic design that borrows heavily from older work. Just recently, this brilliant Joy of Cycling poster for the Transport of London made the rounds. It's based, of course, on illustrations from Alex Comfort's iconic 1972 manual, The Joy of Sex. It is the Joy of Cycling. Of course, the mother of all remix culture studies Kirby Ferguson's excellent four-part series, Everything is a Remix, in which he explores influences across just about every genre and art medium. Here's a short excerpt from part two that drives the point home with one of the world's most celebrated examples of creativity and entertainment. There's so much buzz and excitement about the open source movement today, and many of these principles are hailed as revolutionary, as a sign of the times, but at their core lies... Something ancient. I believe creativity itself is the original open source code. So, what enables this derivative creativity and cross pollination of ideas is a rich pool of mental resources to derive from. And I believe the two main mechanisms of how we fill that pool are curiosity and choice. Curiosity is one of the most fundamental human drivers. Just look at little kids. This hunger to know the world is deep in our species DNA. Jim Cotall, one big creative and curational heroes once said, our number one value isn't in any of the skills we have, it's that we're essentially curious. But curiosity without direction can be a taxing and ultimately unproductive endeavor. Choice is how we tame and channel and direct our curiosity where we choose to allocate our time and energy and ultimately what we choose to pay attention to. Your decisions about allocating your personal time, energy, and talent ultimately shape your life's strategy. Susan Zontag said once, do stuff, be clenched, curious, not waiting for inspiration shove of society's kiss on your forehead, pay attention. It's all about paying attention. Attention is vitality. It connects you with others. It makes you eager. Stay eager. Much of Buddhist philosophy centers around the same idea this balance between what's being phrased as intention and attention. Our intentional curiosity about knowledge and growth, and our choice of where to focus our awareness, what to pay attention to. So that I think. Is the role of information curators. They are our curiosity sherpers who lead us to things we didn't know we were interested in until we, well, until we are, until we pay attention to them. Because someone whose taste and opinion we trust points us to them and we integrate them with our existing pool of resources and they become a part of our network knowledge and another Lego piece in our combinatorial creativity. If information discovery plays such a central role in how we fuel our creativity and thus in our creative output, then information discovery is a form of creative labor in and of itself. And yet our current code of ethics for respecting and crediting this kind of labor is completely inadequate. We have clearly defined systems for what's right or wrong in terms of crediting creative products across text, image, video and different media, from image rights to literally citations. But We don't have the same ethical principles for sources of discovery. And yet in a culture of exponentially increasing overload, it's through these nodes in the information ecosystem, these human sense makers, human synopsis if you will, that this very text or image or video finds its way into our mental pool of resources. So when we choose to take that recognition away, to not acknowledge content curation or information discovery or whatever we call this, we're essentially robbing someone of their creative labor and perpetrating another form of piracy. Whether we call it link love or the via crediting, giving credit online is incredibly simple. It's much easier than doing a proper literary citation or clearing image rights. And yet there is precious little of it online. And for publishers and curators, it's not about getting traffic or monetization or any of those dreadful SEO terms. It's about something much more deeply human. The same thing that I believe underpins every human aspiration and action. And it's as true of suicide bombers as it is of the greatest artists and poets, and that is the desire to matter in the world, to be seen, to know that our existence makes a difference, that our creative and intellectual labor is of value to the world. It's quite telling, I think, that the amount of work that went into the manuscripts written in the Middle Ages made them the most lavish and expensive books to produce at the time. And I have to wonder, when did we lose this sort of creative meritocracy in how we treat dot connecting content curation in today's culture? When did we stop valuing the enormous amount of effort and time and thought that goes into culling and connecting ideas that shape humanity's creative and intellectual direction? we live at a time when we have a rare opportunity to make up the rules because they haven't been invented yet to set the standards and the norms and the honorable way of doing things and this i believe is our responsibility as publishers and curators and consumers of information again it comes down to choice the normative models we choose today will shape how much our culture will value this form of creative labor tomorrow